Here's a sneak peek of what we have today. Best place to start is textbooks. I'm a strong believer that the future of everything will be somehow related to social media. In this network, the only way social media will work is if we share knowledge. It's a big transition from dental school to private practice. There's a lot to know about in dentistry. We should be having discussions about business, entrepreneurship, and innovation. So let's start right here, right now. This is the business of drilling. All right, so welcome back to the business of drilling. Really excited to have you here today. I'm joined by my co-host Bob. Bob, how are you doing? Doing well, Vlad. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. No one ever asks me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy you asked. No, I'm excited. I'm excited. So today we have Dr. Amir T. Uh, he's just a phenomenal guy. A big social media presence at the Real Tooth Doctor 2.0. Dr. Amir is a GP with a focus on oral surgery. He's Australian and Canadian board certified, and he is really active on Insta. We're really excited to hear his story. So, Dr. Amir, welcome to the podcast. How you doing? doing good thank you for having me so before we kind of get into it i mean like how did you get to this place like what was your story from point a to point b how did you get to where you are today oh boy so it all started on a train ride in sydney no i'm joking um when i was in uh, dental school it seems like a long time ago but uh, i remember in second year um Every morning when I was on the train, I used to just love watching, like going through stories in Snapchat. Snapchat used to be the thing. And then um, there was there was this Snapchat page where a lot of my classmates were following and they're like, have you ever seen the bloody tooth guy? And I'm like, no, who's the bloody tooth guy? <laughs> so they showed me the, uh, the Snapchat and I'm like, huh, interesting. And before that, I had never actually seen like a proper dental alveolar surgery. I had never seen a flap. I had never seen how a wisdom tooth comes out. So it kind of became a bit addictive. Like every morning I was watching these videos. I got told off at Starbucks a few times with the people standing behind me, like, what the hell are you watching in the middle of the, <laughs> middle of the <laughs> cafe? But I looked at it and I was so fascinated by it. And I'm like, huh, this is what I want to do. Like, what is, who is this guy? And I want to do what he's doing. So then I kind of got exposed to the whole oral surgery and maxillofacial surgery and the dental alveolar surgery. So, um, I mean, I, I, I was never like the top student in school, but like when it came to oral surgery, I, I, I got it. I understood it. And I kind of wanted to go a little bit above and beyond in it. So kind of set me up for like where, where I headed after dental school. And then, so where did you actually do dental school in Australia, right? So I went to the University of Sydney, graduated in uh, 2018. And then I stayed there for a couple of years. I, I worked in multiple places like most recent graduates do. And then um, back in November of 2020, I finally moved back to Canada. I remember you mentioning uh, that your first initial associateships weren't exactly super oral surgery focused. Um, they were kind of like in some ways all over the place. So how did like that experience kind of like cultivate your interest in oral surgery? Because I feel like those first three to six months out are like are so uh, important for your learning. Uh, and yours was kind of like all over the place. So talk about that a little bit, maybe. When I first graduated, I landed my first part time job. It was a horrible experience. I lasted in that practice for, for two weeks. And I'm like, I'm, I'm out of here. I can't do this. So 
I went and my second position after that two weeks was for covering a maternity leave um, for for a dentist who had just bought the practice and then she was pregnant and wanted to take about you know six or seven months off. And I think they they were a kind of practice where they were doing very 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 like basic dentistry, just you know your regular bread and butter fillings, maybe a few root canals here and there, but that was about it. So. When when a patient first came to like have a tool about to refer it out, and I said, "Wait, why are you guys referring this out?" Oh, like we don't we don't do any extractions at this clinic. I'm like, "Wait, what? How do you how do you have a dental office and not do any extractions?" So you know, I I got them to buy some instruments, and I started doing some of the extractions. Now, keep in mind that the patient base was an older population. Most of them were pretty medically complex. Um, Most of them needed multiple teeth out or had some really, really bad teeth, low socioeconomic status area. So all of a sudden, my, my daily routine changed from just doing restorative to extraction, 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 extraction. Um, And then after that, I took another part-time job um, which was outside of Sydney. So it was in the central coast. I would go there on the weekends. It was like almost a two hour drive for me each way. Um, but again, uh, an area where they didn't have fluoridated water. Most people were drinking tank water, um, horrible, horrible, horrible oral health. Um, and it just kind of sets you up. Like you were kind of thrown in the deep end. You had to be the one who helps them because, there wasn't like a specialist within like 150 kilometers out. So um, I kind of got thrown into the deep end very fast. That sounds like, that sounds like someone who would go rural. Like that sounds like a similar type of experience. Very, very similar. Yeah. Yeah. So can I ask, I mean, how did you go about finding these associates? Like what, sorry, associate ships, what were you looking for uh, exactly? To be honest, when I first graduated, recent grads have a very tough, time finding good work um there was a very big trend which is probably still the case but a lot of places in australia that were well owner would come and supervise the practice for them so um it was really like you either had to move out into an isolated area like a rural area where there wasn't a lot of competition but if you wanted to be within the city or closer to the central parts of the city, unfortunately, you had to have multiple like part-time jobs, which were not very easy to find. So, some of them I I got interviews through you know connections or word of mouth or friends like that. Some of them were just ads online I applied to. It, it was a process. It was definitely a process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's kind of interesting. It hits it hits a little close to home. I mean, we're getting to a point where we have to start looking at associate associateships and see where to go and stuff. And you know, hearing people say like you go to an office and they don't do extractions, period. It's like that's a little bit freaky, right? Like you don't really know what to expect. Yeah, and Dr. Amir, you said you were kind of, in your words, like thrown in the deep end when it comes to like handling this uh, patient population. Uh, were you just relatively confident in, the, in like your oral surgery skills coming out of school, or was like you took some CE, or like you just figured it out day by day? Believe it or not, till this date, 
I have never taken an oral surgery CE, not one really? since, since dental school. Wow. Not one. The only CE I have taken was one for molar root canal. Another one was for medical emergencies in the dental office and my sedation and uh, implant residency. I had never taken a single CE in extractions or oral surgery. And to be honest, I don't want to bash any courses out there. Like I don't even know what courses are out there, but I don't think oral surgery is a skill you can take away from a weekend course. It's just not. It's something you have to practice on a daily basis for a long period of time, because even till this date, I might've taken a few thousand teeth out. I have done over a thousand wisdom teeth, few thousand just other teeth. Even till this day, at least twice a week, I will have a case that will humble me. I will sweat. I will have tears coming out of my eyes. I'd be cursing under my mask and I'd be like, why am I doing this? But once it's done, you know, I take away something new from it. Um, one thing that most people don't know is when I graduated I, I was very lucky. I had built a good relationship with the maxillofacial surgeon that was in our school. Um, I was very fascinated by him. This guy was an old school surgeon. He did medical school first. He did dental school after it. He did general surgery for four years, five years. He did just hip replacements. He replaced one of my examiners. Uh, you know, an old school Max Fax guy. This guy had done medical school. He had done and then orthopedic surgery and then became Max Fax. So this guy was literally the real deal. There wasn't anything he hadn't done. Um, I was so fascinated by his work and his cases and the way he taught. I reached out to him. He was actually the surgeon that was very close by to one of the practices I was working at. Um, you know, I started referring cases to him and I reached out. I said, hey, you know, do you mind if I come and um, watch you, you know, do these cases or, you know, uh, assist you? So it was a long process to get hospital rights for me because a lot of the things he had done was in the hospital and they don't just let anyone come into the OR. So the process of getting approvals from all these hospitals for me to have, you know, rights to come and they called it operate, but I was really just insisting. Um, after that, I started referring cases. I went in the OR with him. You know, it would be five or six times a month, 16 hours, six, maybe sometimes 18 hours a day. It wasn't just only dental alveolar surgery. He did everything. He did facial trauma, cleft palates, pathology, nerve repair. He did it all. Wow. And so I shadowed him for the first few times. And then it turned into, okay, you can start assisting me. So he would ask the nurses to step back. I would retract, you know, I would suction, grab instruments for him. And it had got to the point where I knew his next five steps, the next five instruments he's going to need and how he's going to use them. And even sometimes I would be, before he asked, I would have another instrument ready for him. I'm like, no, try it with this one. And then he would like, you know, do it. So, you know, sometimes he would let me suture things close. Sometimes he would let me like raise a flap and so forth. But I think after the first year where, you know, I, I watched enough and, you know, saw enough, he, he would let me operate on some of my own patients. 
um, under his supervision, which was, you know, amazing because when it's under GA and the patient's fully, fully out, it's a, it's a very different learning environment than when you're doing it on a live patient and, you know, they're moving, the tongue is you know all over the place and so forth. So after that, um, I started taking a few other positions and I said, Hey, you know, do you guys have um, a lot of surgicals in your practice? Are you referring them out? Um, it's so like, you know, I would love to do some of the cases. And to be honest, the only way to learn surgery is to do it, do a lot of it. Because from every procedure you do, you're going to take something new out of it. Every single one. There isn't a single case I do during the week that I, I don't learn something new. Even on Instagram, you know, I've, as I said before, I've done few thousand extractions in my short career so far, even till this day, I I watched some of the other surgeons post their videos. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Like I never even thought about that. And you you learn so much, like every relationship you build. um, I feel that you can take something from it. Every person you meet, every clinician you work with, everyone's got some sort of trick or um, experience or skill under their sleeve that you can learn from. Very cool. I I can totally see that actually. I mean, in dental school, I mean, we don't have you know a crazy amount of experience in terms of oral surgery, but I remember just the the first oral surgery session I had. I, I wasn't a fan of it. Like I, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I felt very uh, out of place. And then the second one was like, okay, I, I feel, I kind of understand what's going on now. Like I, I I'm getting my feet wet. Like, okay, that feels better. And then the third one was like, okay, I kind of like this more now. Okay. I, I see what the plan is here. That's very interesting. So that's a very different perspective because a lot of the people that we've had on here really advocate of like, basically like taking charge of your education, right. Going out and finding the things that you are interested in and study them and study them well. So you kind of bypass the CE route with your, with your OMF as SmackFac surgeon, right? Now you kind of got the direct sort of like learning opportunity through him. If someone's, you know, if a GP is out there and they want to start focusing purely on oral surgery, right? And say they're like a completely new grad, what would be your suggestion in terms of where, where could they start? Textbooks. Textbooks. I think the best place to start is textbooks because you need to have the foundation of why you're doing certain things the way you're doing it. If you don't know the theory behind what you're doing, you're more a technician than a clinician. So anatomy, I think is the most important thing in any kind of surgical procedure. To be honest, my anatomy in dental school was horrible. I think I barely passed my head and neck exam. I think I was like, I, I had such a low score. Like I think I had just like just got the passing. But now in practice, I like I when I wanted to do more surgical, I went back. I studied. I studied a lot. There was um, times where like I would come from home, like home from work, I'd, I would probably read a textbook for like three hours, like through dinner. Like just sit in bed reading a new chapter because everything you do has to have some kind of um, theory behind it. So, you know, I know some people that had gotten in a lot of hot water, you know, someone I knew back in Australia decided to do their first wisdom tooth without learning the theory. 
um, took a nice distal uh, incision behind and like erupted third molar. Did not go well. I mean, if you don't know what's what's going on behind that third molar and you don't know the anatomy and why we do a distal buckle or a fully buckle incision, then to you, it's just another cut. You're cutting it. Nothing bad can happen. I mean, not to mention the nerve that runs behind there, but <laughs> but theory. I think theory is the first thing. If you don't have the opportunity to shadow or get mentorship from another clinician who's more experienced, um, then, of course, like continuing education is amazing. But keep in mind with continuing education, it's, you know, in a two-day, three-day course, you're not going to develop all the skills you need to start tackling every case that comes your way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's something that you can learn over a weekend for sure. But like, you know, if people um, dedicate, you know, their entire first year out of school and every weekend, for example, they go out and try to take some sort of CE, you know, is that something that you think would be appropriate or would do you think it's better more just to focus on the theory and doing the practice of actually, you know, doing these, those extractions, getting your hands kind of dirty? I think a combination of both. I think everything in moderation is good. I don't, like I don't advocate anyone to become like a cowboy tomorrow and just start, you know, <laughs> using their patients as guinea pigs. But I wouldn't go out and, you know, CE is extremely expensive. Mm-hmm. Especially when you're coming out as a new grad, you've got debt from dental school. Um, you're probably not going to be making much money in the first year to develop those hand skills and time management skills. Each one of these courses runs anywhere from three to like six, $7,000. So you got to be very selective on which one you want to take. I would probably ask my peers who have taken them before for some feedback. I mean, some of them I hear are amazing and some of them I hear not, not too well. And I would also be mindful of who's teaching it. Um, This will probably get me in a lot of trouble, but you know, whatever course you're taking, whoever's teaching it, do a little bit of, you know, a little bit of research or, you know, a little background check on who this clinician is and so forth. Because if someone has very little experience in something or doesn't specialize in something or is not doing something very well and they just decide to run a course i mean well that's just money down the drain to be honest gotcha that's a solid piece of advice yeah quick follow-up question so correct me if i'm wrong but i believe your scope of practice is almost just oral surgery now i think you do a little bit of uh, general dentistry um for you what's the next step in in your career in uh are you looking to like expand your oral surgery uh, scope of practice or maybe pursuing like an OMFS in the future? Well, to be honest, this has been something that like I'm part of a lot of chat groups on Instagram with like a lot of surgeons and specialists and so forth. And this has been like a constant battle within myself for the last couple of weeks. Um, it's not a secret. I don't really enjoy, you know, general scope of dentistry as much as I do with oral surgery. I'm not going to deny that whatsoever. But um, the thing is, I feel personally, this is my own personal opinion, I feel that maxillofacial surgeons are very, very overqualified for most of the things they'll have to do in private practice. So of course, I would love to go and do oral surgery, but I feel like it's a very, very tough tough residency a lot of my friends are oral surgeons 
And, you know, you hear stories about how those four or six years have gone and you're like, Ooh, do I really want to do that? And then plus it's the financial commitments and, you know, losing income for the next four or five years. Um, so I don't know. It's still, it's still a debate within myself. It's not off the table, but um, I'll have to see. Honestly, I'll have to wait and see. Next chapter of Dr. Amir T. <laughs> Going back to school. <laughs> no, for sure. I Honestly, you're not the first person that's kind of uh, talked about, you know, is it worth it or not to go into residency? And I think, you know, as dental students, that's, that's a good question to ask yourself too. I mean, what are you really expecting to do, right? Are you are you interested in doing more of the complicated surgeries? Are you trying to get OR privileges, right? Like, those are the things that are important, I guess. But, you know, the general day-to-day, Bob, I mean, how many guests have we had on that, you know, limit their scope of practice to, you know, a certain area? I mean, like probably more than half at this point. Right. And that's yeah. something I didn't know about before I started dental school. Like I didn't know GPs could just pretty much just do whatever they want and focus on that and be quite successful at it too, because you're passionate about it. So that's really cool. Um, you mentioned that you, you know, ha- are in these chats on social media with, um, with a bunch of surgeons and a bunch of other you know professionals so uh, can you talk about that i mean how did you get started with social media what's the story there because the real tooth doctor 2.0 i have the insta page pulled up here almost 100k followers that's a, that's a lot for dentistry like especially that's a lot so congratulations but can, can <laughs> i'm you eight followers i'm eight followers away from ninety-eight thousand tonight so hopefully we'll get <laughs> we'll contact a bunch of our dental friends and try to get that. <laughs> there you go yeah <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Um, Yeah. How did you get started? What's the story behind that? So when I was in my fourth year of dental school, as I was starting, like getting closer to graduation, I'm a strong believer that the future of everything will be somehow related to social media, like the future of advertising, future of communications and like all. I wanted to pretty much have some kind of platform where I can connect with colleagues, I can meet other clinicians and um, kind of network. So when I first started it, I was like, well, what is my niche? What is my passion? Um, It was just pictures of myself. And I'm like, well, this is not very interesting. I mean, who wants to see this? So I started I think one my one of the very first wisdom teeth I ever took out had a very, very funky root to it. And I think that was my very, very first post on the original Real Tooth Doctor account. Now, I had tagged a bunch of people in it and Bloody Tooth Guy had seen it and he really liked that picture. So then he shared it on his story. Now, a lot of people don't know this, but... Um, I, when I was in dental school, I actually had started chatting with um, Jason Auerbach, um, who's the bloody tooth guy. So, you know, I, I we had a lot of uh, common interests um, and we, we would, you know, chat a lot. I would ask him a lot of questions about cases. And uh, when I was writing the board exams, when I was graduating, I would send him questions that I couldn't find the answers to. Um, he's a very nice guy. He's very nice, humble, um, very smart, and very good at what he does. Um, so, you know, from there, I started posting more and more and more of my extractions. Now, these were just teeth. I mean, I was 
I was a new grad out after six months. It, like what, what content could I have possibly had? So, um, and then one of my uh, classmates who was very passionate about aesthetic dentistry, um, he was saying, look, there's a lot of people messaging me, asking me about um, my experience post-graduation. Um, and I told him, to be honest, I have a bunch of messages in my mailbox about people asking different questions because, you know, as dental students get to their last semester, they start freaking out. Well, what's, what's the world going to be after dental school, which is very valid. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but we weren't told too much about life after graduation. So <laughs> there was a lot of unknowns in our head. Um, so we did a live together, which was quite a big hit. I think we had a few thousand people who ended up viewing that live. Um, we did a live where we had just compiled a bunch of questions from students. And for a couple of hours, we answered these and the live was shared on multiple pages, one after the other. So it started kind of putting, putting my name out, um, started getting a lot more followers. Um, and then I think the biggest point where my account became very well known or popular was after I did a live with bloody tooth guy. So when I was in Australia, I did a live with him. Um, you know, it was again, a pile of questions from students, other clinicians about him, about the work, oral surgery. So, you know, we did an, uh, I think it was like over an hour or maybe even two. I think we, we maxed out two, uh, two of the live uh, time limits, but it was a very good live. He answered a lot of questions he had never done before in public. He revealed a lot and so forth. So, you know, from there, I started building a lot more connections for with other surgeons, with other guys on Instagram. And you know what? A lot of them are very humble people. I mean, here and there, you'll meet the ones that are not, but a lot of them are humble. You can, you know, just say, hi, how are you? I love your case. Thank you for sharing. You know, and then you, you build a, you know, a connection. So during lockdown, the very original lockdown, um, when COVID first hit, we had nothing to do. Like we were out of work. Australia shut down dental practices altogether. And one of my good friends, Dean Lysenblatt, who's a general dentist in, um, in Sydney, he limits his practice to oral surgery. He's, He's probably one of the best guys in Australia for dental implants, and he runs a lot of the CE there. He started day by day doing lives with different clinicians on Instagram. Um, it was called the Dean's Office. And then one day, one of the guests didn't show up, so he asked me to jump on the live with him. Um, and Dean and I became very close. We, we, we met once in person but then our relationship really developed over social media. And from there, you know, he kind of put me in contact with a lot of other people. And um, he really helped me a lot with even mentoring me with cases, teaching me about implants, a lot of surgical techniques. Um, so I think from there, I just got involved with a lot of different people. And uh, next thing you know is... 
one after another. I was getting tagged in things. People were tagging me in their stories. People were sending me messages. So I started posting more and more and more content. And then here we are today, four years there later. <laughs> 2K away from 100K. That's amazing, man. Congratulations. That's, a, that's, a, that's an you. awesome journey. So how long have you been doing the Real Tooth Doctor 2.0 now? About, uh, about a couple of years? So the 2.0 has been about two years. The mm. original account where I had my other, um, it was a lifestyle page. It was just cars and other things. Um, that account I had for seven years. But the original Tooth Doctor account where I started it, was back in, I think, 2017, if I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So would you say, like, do you think it's a necessity for, you know, dentists to have an Instagram now? Like, do you feel like it's important? And, like, I think it's a distraction at this point. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's a necessity. It really depends on the person and their characteristics. I mean, I work with some people that can't even be bothered to even log into their Instagram accounts. Me, I'm very different. I will not answer emails, phone calls, text messages, but if you send me a DM, it'll probably be read within 24 hours. Oh, there you go. Bob, smart play, man. <laughs> I scoped my guess well, yo. I actually wanted to touch on a, a specific topic on social media. Um, I find like oftentimes, not just in, in dentistry, but there's like a little bit of a facade on in social media where everything, and maybe it, it's really uh, magnified in dentistry where everyone just kind of posts their good cases and, you know, everything's, you know, happy-go-lucky. But oftentimes there's a lot of, uh, you know, indecisiveness or, or I guess you can say insecurities also sometimes on Instagram. What have you found to be some of the cons um, to go on Instagram? Like, have you ever like, dealt with like trolls or just people, you know, just giving you a hard time for no real reason? Absolutely. Absolutely. So one of my posts a couple of weeks ago went viral. It got shared on a bunch of big pages. And I think overall it had like a few hundred thousand views. And um, it was one of the aspiration technique um, posts I had done for, for that. Now that got shared on iDentistry, World of Dentistry, Dental World, and like a bunch of other pages that I couldn't even keep up with. And the number of messages I had received, holy moly, it was like, I think at one point I had 600 people in my DM of telling me how wrong my techniques are. I said, okay. So I was reading through some of these comments. One of the posts, I can't remember which page it was. It had like over 400 comments. And I was just like scrolling through it. And some of the things I read, I'm like, seriously, you're a licensed dentist. Like, how do you not know that? Um, Some people were criticizing me on my gloves on the video. Why would you use this color of gloves? I'm like, well, there you go. (laughs) I didn't know. I didn't know the color of your gloves can be wrong. But um, I was actually discussing this with one of my friends um, who's a periodontist I was with yesterday. There is... (sighs) On Instagram, there's a lot of opinion, right? And you know what? Some of it is valid. I did a a podcast last year and they said, you know, are you not afraid to be subject to uh, criticism by posting content online, especially with such a large audience? I said, look, if someone has something valid to say, if somebody has something to tell me that I've done wrong, it's valid and they tell me how to improve, I love that. That's why I'm there. I'm not here to say I'm good or bad. I'm not here to say if my way's right or wrong. I think in this network, the only way social media will work is if we share knowledge. 
that I get like at least 20 messages a day of people thanking me because they were able to treat a patient better because of one information I had shared online. Now, I don't own this information. It's not my technique. I've just read it maybe in a textbook somewhere or learned it from one of my mentors. Or what I've even, I might have even seen it on social media myself. But by sharing it, I feel like as a profession, we can, you know, lift each other up by practicing better, by, you know, providing a better care for our patients. Um, so, of course, once in a while, you're going to have a bunch of trolls, you know, criticizing things and saying things. And I don't ignore it. I, I, I look at their criticism. Like today, I think one person had said, oh, I think your technique for extraction of this tooth is very wrong because you're doing this. I said, well, wait, it's not necessarily wrong, but this is my reasoning for doing this. And then another surgeon said, yeah, absolutely. I do the same. Another surgeon said, look, I do the exact same thing. It's not wrong. It's because, especially when you're very inexperienced or you're a new clinician or you're a student, you read something in a lecture, you read something in a book and you think it's the only way. But then when you get in real world clinical work, you see that there are many, many ways to roam. It's, you know, we were taught one way because that professor wanted to teach his way or he was using one source. There are many, many ways. And unfortunately, some people, when they see something different, they'll think um, it's wrong. It's not necessarily wrong, but I think one of the funniest comments I read, which I, when I read it, I actually laughed for a bit. Um, when I had done an incision and drainage in the posterior of the mandible, um, I don't know if you guys had seen it, but one person wrote, oh, you clown, you just caught the person's sensation to all their teeth and jaw. Now, <laughs> you read this, you can't really take it seriously because you're like, wait, do you not know your anatomy? <laughs> what nerve runs on the outside of the mandible that is innervating teeth? Like, what? <laughs> so... Yeah, you'll have trolls, but so sometimes criticism is good. I, like I, I think I had posted one case two years ago where I truffed bone and I received a lot of heat for that case because everyone was like, why are you truffing away bone? But some of the old school, like old school uh, surgeons were saying, oh, well, no, this is the best way. This is what we were taught. But some of the newer clinicians were saying, no, 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 we want to preserve the buckle bone because later on this person might want to implant. Why would you get rid of it? So since that criticism, I don't think I have troughed a buckle bone since. I think I have sweat. I have cried. I have cursed to do everything to not trough a bone, even though I knew if I, for example, for even cases I had last week, I'm like, I could just trough the buckle bone off this tooth right now and have it out. But I'm like, nope, nope, because this person might want an implant at some point. Not going to happen. So it's not all that. I definitely find that to be true as well. Like the, that the pros, I just personally got on Instagram, like maybe like a year and a half ago. And I find it to be specifically in dentistry, uh, a really good uh, way to like, just to learn and connect with people. Um, and the, the, I think the positives do outweigh the negatives. I remember like it was a couple of weeks ago that you mentioned like basically someone, uh, it was a case that you posted and someone else basically copied, copy pasted that case onto their Instagram as like, Oh, like I did the case. Um, so I'm sure like that's, that, that gets frustrating, but uh, I think Ooh. overall, yeah. Really? I didn't even think about that. So I had people contacting me. They're like, hey, Dr. Amir, um, 
this is your like this is one of your posts i have seen this on your story and i'm like yeah where did you get this from it's like yeah so um someone like some accounts are like posting your content and claiming it to be theirs like they're they're using it to like real patients it and i'm like huh so i click on these profiles all of them have blocked me so i can't even see it wow so my assistant tried to get into them and i'm like and my assistant wrote under one of them is like sir i actually took this video myself this is not your work this is a clinician in canada and he blocked her too so you know it, it happens but like sometimes it's frustrating but i i just wonder with like cases like that like imagine you've like posted something and saying that's your work what's going to happen when the patient comes and you can't do that procedure or you don't do it the same way or you end up butchering it like what are you going to say then okay that that's actually a really interesting perspective i didn't even think about that but i guess you kind of have to be ready for it and dentistry seems like you know it's one of those professions like even in, in clinic bob like i'm sure you can attest to this too right like we get so many different perspectives from different instructors right and i feel like instagram you know publicly displaying your work like that um just opens you up to so much, but no, it's cool that you've kind of, I guess, persevered through it and kind of keep going with what you're going. And I'm looking forward to you hitting hundred K that's going to be exciting. <laughs> so that'll be cool. You definitely deserve it. If someone, if someone's trying to start up a dental Instagram, right. Cause I'm sure it's getting more and more popular and there's a lot of people that want to kind of get into this. Um, where should they start? Like if you were to give one piece of advice, a dental influencer, what, what can you do? I think they should find someone's like a page that they admire and see what they like about it. And if those are the kind of cases they want to post or that style, then they can start doing that. I know there's a lot of people that try to, you know, post the bloody teeth or the extraction videos and so forth. And a lot of them tag me in their stuff or ask me, like a lot of them would say, Hey, do you mind like sharing this on your story? And if it's relevant to my audience, I always do. I always want to support other clinicians because, you know, a year or two ago, that was me. Um, so I think just getting in touch with pages you like and admire their work, you know, asking them for guidance or help with your own cases. Sometimes I, I would even, before I post something, I, I always want to get a little bit of feedback. So I would post it in like my group of surgeons. I'd be like, hey guys, if you guys were to scrutinize this video right now, what can you say? And they're like, it's fine. Go ahead, post it. So, you know, that that's my perspective. I think, you know, trying to find your passion, your, the things you like on Instagram and see what they're doing and what, you know, resonates with you and then getting in contact with that person. I'm sure a lot of them would love to help you out. There was a, there was one last topic we definitely wanted to hit with you. And um, this is a discussion we've had in, in our class a, a bunch. Uh, basically, um, when you, you know, right now we're in London, Ontario, Canada, you know, two hours away from Toronto. And some of us have aspirations to maybe go to, to states. Some of us have aspirations to go like, you know, across provinces. Um, obviously, you took the jump, I think, closer to a year ago, a year and a half ago, um, going from Australia to Canada now. What kind of, I don't want to say barriers or like, um, but what kind of challenges did you find in terms of going from Australia to Canada as a practicing dentist? Like, was it dealing with insurance companies? Was it like regulations, especially during the height of COVID? Uh, it must have been, it must have been a, a big transition. To be honest with you, it. I don't think the dentistry was a big transition for me, but definitely things are done very different in Canada. And even till this day, I'm still trying to learn, 
you know, like in a, I'll use an example in, in Australia, I knew most of the item codes to be built. I had memorized them. I knew how to use them, when to use them. I knew if insurances would cover them or not. Um, and that would even sometimes like if I felt like the insurance company is not going to cover something, at least I let the patient know, or if I knew the patient's going to have a trouble with it, I wouldn't charge it. I'd be like, you know what, right? Like just forget about it. But here it's a different scenario because um, in Canada, there's copay and the copay has to be charged. Um, it, like item codes are very complicated here. I don't know why there's like six digits to every item code to be charged when it can be literally three. Um, and I still haven't figured out, you know, how the insurances work, what they'll cover, what they don't. Um, it's, it's a little bit of a learning point, like a learning curve, at least for me, it has been so far. And I know like here, dental assistants can do a lot more. And then there's hygienists and in Australia, like most of the practices I worked at either didn't have an hygienist. We did our own cleans or if they did, it was like maybe once a week, twice a week. Um, so, and I know in Ontario, there's very, very strict rules for everything. So, I think that was also like, especially for getting into sedation and all that, I, I definitely had to sit down and do a lot of learning. Yeah, that's interesting. Would you go back to Australia at all? Or are you, you planning to stay on Can in Canada? Look, it's another one of my internal struggles. I feel like this is a therapy <laughs> session. Uh, it's another one of my internal struggles, to be honest with you. Um, I love Canada, but I also love Australia. There are pros about dentistry in Canada and then there's pros about dentistry in Australia um, I felt like in Australia I had settled in more I was um, I was in a couple of practices where my foot was very bolted down I had a large patient base um, there I was getting a lot of referrals I even had patients coming in three or four hours away just to see me because of word of mouth um, I had a lot of partnership opportunities there um, and I had very, very, very strong mentorship. So um, as I said, Dean, who's like, honestly, like one of my best friends, he is an amazing implant surgeon. I have shadowed maybe a hundred different periodontists, oral surgeons, prosthodontists, general dentists. And till this day, Dean is probably in the top five of the people I've ever seen. So he was very generous with his knowledge and um, with his teaching, um, which I really, really wish that I still had. But the other thing that really, really does differ here is fees. In Australia, especially for oral surgeries, the fees are a lot higher. Oh, really? Um, very, so... I'm going to use an example in Australia. When I did a surgical extraction, you could first of all charge what you feel is necessary. There's no set guide. Um, depending on the situation, I would use my judgment, you know, how much time it took difficulty, how much post operative post op 
I'm expecting to see this patient or am I expecting it to be a very complicated post-operative time? Am I going to see this patient four more times in the next two weeks? So I think I would charge anywhere from $400 to $500 for surgical extraction there. In Canada, if it's an erupted tooth, well, at least in Ontario, the fee guide up until December was $265, I believe. Now they've bumped it up to $278. And I think a simple extraction is like $150 to $160 something dollars, which if you put it in perspective with other dental fees, a panoramic x-ray is $70. A composite filling starts from $200. Now, is a one-surface composite filling more risky, more technique-sensitive, more takes more time, or let's say an extraction of an upper six? So it just makes no sense where if you did an MOD, you can charge, I think it's like $300, the fee guide. But if you did a surgical extraction on an endotreated molar with a post-core crown on it that you probably aged five years doing the procedure, then you could only charge $270. To me, it just makes no sense. I always assumed Australia was cheaper for some reason. Oh, no. Dentistry in Australia is definitely more expensive. The only um, thing I like about Canada is that a lot of people are insured and the fees are a lot more affordable. So Mm -hmm. acceptance rates of treatments is a lot higher compared to Australia. Oh, I see. Okay. I'm just wondering, I mean, like acceptance rates, what other options can a person do? Just leave the teeth in if they need to be pulled out? To be honest, sometimes they would go to, they, they had public dental hospitals. And if oh, the patient was low socioeconomic status, they would qualify for public um, hospital dentistry, especially if it's an emergency, they would see them. I'm not sure. I don't think there is any in Canada or if there is, it's just under the government programs, but um, a lot more limited compared to Australia for sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I didn't expect that. Yeah. Like, um, I remember you, you did a Q and a a few, like a month or maybe a few weeks ago. And I asked you the question, um, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? And the answer that you gave was retirement. I don't know if that was, a, I don't know if that was a serious answer or what, but uh, realistically, where do you see yourself in five to 10 years? Like, do you want to get into practice ownership? Do you want to kind of maybe, you know, go back and forth to, to Australia? Do you want to maybe try a new country? What's, what's the future look, uh, looking like for Dr. Amir? So realistically, I want to be fully, fully limited to oral surgery and implantology. I think that's where my goal is for the next five years. Um, I'm not ready to do that yet because believe it or not, uh, a lot of my, my billings actually come from general dentistry. As I said, oral surgery does not pay very well, at least with the fee guides here. Um, but, uh, I mean, ideally I would want to be retired. I don't know how much more my back and neck can take it, but, um, I actually stand up when I do my procedures, especially with extractions and, and, wisdom teeth i can't do it sitting down i have to be standing it's just the way i was trained and when i did all those or cases we're always standing so now i've lost my my uh, momentum trying to sit down and do those procedures and when you stand you put a great strain on your neck and back so you know 
I joke when I say I want to be retired in five to 10 years, but you know, for some clinicians, it's actually reality. Like when I put that uh, story up about my back and neck pain, I had like over a hundred people send me like messages saying, Oh my God, like, I don't know how I'm going to work. I've cut down work from like six days to two days a week. And I'm still having back pain and neck pain. I'm like, Oh, okay. So it's not just me. I'm excited to see where your career goes. Honestly, I think you're a phenomenal person. And if you haven't already, definitely go follow the real Tooth Doctor 2.0. We got to get this man to 100K followers. <laughs> Hopefully <laughs> by end of the year. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> 2022 is going to be your year. Um, so it's getting close to an hour. Uh, I wanted to wrap things up. Can you maybe leave off on, you know, what's one suggestion you'd give to dental students if you could? I think the most important thing after graduation is finding a mentor, um, someone that can guide you because it's a big transition from dental school to private practice. Um, And if you feel that you don't still have the confidence to get into private practice, or if you, especially with COVID where I feel like a lot of students felt like they missed out on a lot of clinical experience during their last years or so forth, then, you know, residency programs, the one-year um, general practice residencies and so forth are a great option. But a mentor is your best friend. It's going to be the one who will get you through those tough cases, will push you past your comfort zone and, you know, help you grow as a clinician. Cool. Perfect. Perfect. Bob, any closing remarks? No, just a big thank you to, to, to Dr. Amir for, for taking the time out uh, and humbling us and coming on our podcast. Uh, you know, an hour of your time. Thank you for having me. So, no, no I appreciate you guys pleasure. having me. It was awesome. very fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you very much again, Dr. Amir. Really appreciate your time. This has been the business of drilling. If you haven't checked us out, go check out debbieacademy.ca. We try to have topics about business, innovation, and entrepreneurship all the time. Follow us on Facebook and on Instagram at debbie.learn. That's D-E-B-I dot L-E-A-R-N. And of course, go follow the Real Tooth Doctor 2.0 if you're interested in oral surgery whatsoever. I think you're going to be mind blown by his account. So thank you very much for listening and uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Take care.